Hello, you're listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. And this episode aims to make you an expert on Syria, specifically the civil war and refugee crisis. The Syrian civil war is an ongoing multi-sided civil war fought between forces employed by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and various domestic and foreign forces opposing both the Syrian government and each other. Now, as we record this in June 2020, the war is in its ninth year and is the second deadliest of the 21st century. Here to help us understand more, and to try to make you an expert on the topic, is Professor Krista Salamandra, Syrian media specialist and professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Centre, City University of New York. Hello, Krista. Hi. Uh, as the introduction says, you are a professor of anthropology and a Syrian media specialist, but perhaps you could just shed a little light on what that means and how this qualifies you to be our expert today. Well, all anthropologists, I'm a cultural anthropologist, first of all, uh, which means I study culture. And um, we all have specializations, and mine is uh, on urban culture and visual culture, and particularly media, um, and even more particularly the Syrian drama television drama in- industry, which has been flourishing over the past 20 years. I think it's key to establish a, a timeline and also a bit of context about Syria itself and its people. So uh, where's a good place to start? And do we need to go back 10 years, 100 years or 1000 years? Um, we could go back to 10,000 BC. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got 30 minutes. <laughs> Let's crack at it. Um, your, your listeners who visited Syria will probably know that it's very rich in um civilizational history. And I'm thinking of the, the, the shocking but not surprising remark that President Trump made recently um, about Syria being nothing but sand uh, and death. And Syria is in fact home to the world's, the two cities that vie for the world's most continuously inhabited cities, uh, Damascus and Aleppo. So we're talking about a very old and rich civilization. It was where writing the alphabet as we know it uh, was invented. It was the seed of the empire that became um, the empire ruling Islamic Spain. We're dealing with a place with a rich and varied history and a complex social um, and religious and ethnic fabric. Syria was um, part of the Ottoman Empire, which disbanded in the early 20th century. Um, and then was governed by a French mandate, which was ostensibly to pre- prepare it for independence, um, and of course, uh, it proceeded more like colonialism. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it became independent in, in the 50s and um, had a brief period of a participatory government that is often referred to as um, Syria's democratic years. And then in the aftermath of that, suffered a series of military dictatorships, um, culminating with um, the al-Assad government or regime, which uh, took over in 1970. And I think to really understand a lot of what's happened over the past 20 years in particular, 2000 is an important date. That's the year of Bashar al-Assad's rise to power. He took over the presidency as it is called, from his father Hafiz upon Hafiz's death. And this was a moment that was greeted with a lot of cautious optimism um, by many Syrians and particularly people that I worked with in Damascus 
um, media professionals and other professional people, um, not terribly well-off people, but people um, who uh, form the, the middle and upper middle classes, um, and who uh, were really looking forward to a great deal of change and thought that Bashar al-Assad was just the person to implement it. Here he was, he had a Western education, a British education. He had a British wife who was a high-flying financier. Um, and they looked much more presidential, like a presidential first couple, much more than a dictator and his wife. Um, and they thought, well, this is going to dismantle all of the, you know, the, the, the old guard of um, regime preferences, like sectarian cronyism, all of that was going to be dismantled in favor of something that would look much more modern, um, much more progressive, much more participatory. And there was a great deal of hopefulness projected onto the president himself because he was perceived as somebody who would be able to fight the old guard of his father's cronies and really open up open up the country um, and, and and produce a kind of more equitable society. And so it looked like it was happening. Um, and then, but by the end of 2001, so a year and a half perhaps, after all of the, the, this flourishing, which has now become known as the Damascus Spring, it had pretty much been repressed. Um, and some of the leaders were imprisoned, media outlets closed. Um, but things didn't go back to just the way they were before that. There was something else in the air, um, and there was a new energy, and there was a legacy of raised expectations that that era produced that I think survived the 10 years between the Damascus Spring and what is sometimes called the Arab Spring in Syria's uprising in 2000, March of 2011. Peaceful protesters took to the streets and demanded reform and then demanded regime change when reform seemed not to be forthcoming or the paltry steps in the direction of reform didn't fool anyone. So that was the turning point that kind of leads to the, the, the crisis and the war we're in now. That was 2011, and that was basically peaceful protest against Assad's regime, but they quickly turned from protest to an uprising to an armed rebellion, didn't they? Very quickly. So what you have um, is a protest uprising revolutionary movement that then becomes an, an armed civil war eventually, you know, as we're into 2013, 2014, and from 2015 onwards, more and more a proxy war. So when people ask the question, is it a civil war? Is it a proxy war? Is it a revolution? It's, it's all three. So when we look at all the different sides that are involved, which is probably going to take up quite a, a substantial part of this podcast, um, you've got Assad, he's standing his ground. Uh, mm -hmm. So who's backing him in terms of other countries and people inside the borders of Syria? Two, since 2015, the most important uh, backer of the Assad regime has been the Russians. Um, and the Iranians have become increasingly more important as well. Um, and they were around a little bit earlier in the form of is Hezbollah. 
as a kind of proxy, the Lebanese Shia political movement, um, which is armed. So you have those two forces really bolstering the regime. Um, and on the other side, there isn't really another side. There are many sides. The rebels who have taken a real battering in the last 10 years, they're not one voice, are they? They're lots of different rebel factions. So what are their sort of positions and what are they fighting for and, and against whom? Uh, very often they've fought against each other. I mean, now most of the, the most um, well-armed, well-trained and um, heavily numbered groups are Islamist groups of one distinction or another, um, some very radical groups. And that, but that doesn't mean that they get along very well. So you have um, ISIS-backed groups fighting with um, Al-Qaeda-backed groups. Um, and you still have an Al-Qaeda back group is still um, pretty much running things in Idlib province in the moment, Haidt Tahrir Sham, which formally disassociated itself from Al-Qaeda a few years ago, but really uh, remains as part of that legacy, right? The, the, their ideology is quite similar. So you have that going on, and then you have the Kurdish movement, which is a whole other complication. They are an ethnic group uh, who speak Kurdish. The lines between them and other groups are sometimes murky. They do have an ethnic identity um, and a sense of shared history, which is very much a history of oppression um, and even genocide. They were the subject of gassing campaigns in, in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, for example. Um, they've been persecuted pretty heavily um, in Turkey. Now, in, even in a, Syri a society like Syria, in a polity like Syria, which prides itself on being multi-ethnic, multi-religious, um, the Kurds have had a very difficult place. Um, they're, they're numerous, um, and they don't fit into Arabism very well. And they have quite justifiably um, ha had a long-standing ambition towards an autonomous region. And they have cooperated with foreign powers over the years and were promised such a territory, and that promise was always reneged. So this is a very long-suffering community that nevertheless has managed to set up um, a quite amazing democratic uh, social experiment in Rojava. Okay, so we've got Assad, we've got the rebels that are backed by Al-Qaeda, uh, we've got rebels backed by ISIS, uh, we've got the Kurds, and then that's kind of drawn Turkey in because do they fear the, the Kurdish autonomy? Absolutely, they do. Um, and they have they have bolstered both in terms of the troops, that, the Syrian troops that they support in northeastern, uh, northwestern Syria, and in the communities, the villages that they support, they have had try, tried to Arabize and Sunniize the area. So uh, if you're listening to this now and you've got your globe or your map of the world in your head, we've got pins at the moment in Syria. We've got a pin in Russia because of their involvement uh, with Iran as well, who are backing Assad. Uh, we've got kind of the US backing the Kurds. We've got Turkey against the Kurds. We need a few more other pins. One is in Lebanon, southern Lebanon, where Hezbollah is. And then the important proxies who have 
with the United States at least green light backed the non-secular armed opposition in Syria. That that goes beyond just the Al-Qaeda and the um, ISIS groups and extends to uh, an array of other Islamist groups that sometimes operate separately and sometimes join in in um, federations that break up and pull apart in ways that are quite complex. And, and I mean, there are a few specialists that follow this, but it's um, even my Syrian colleagues kind of throw their hands up in the air about that. But we know that that Qatar, Kuwait, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have all played a role in arming such groups and that they, too, do not have an interest in a democratic Syria or in any thriving, functioning democracy in the region. You know, they're, they're, they're monarchies. Um, they would not be happy about that example next door. So you said we need some more pins. I think what what started as, is it one group against another, is now starting in my head to look a bit more like a spider's web with Assad at the centre and all these different groups around the outside and they're all linked as well, which kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning of, is it a civil war or a proxy war? It sounds like it started as a civil war and has it now just become a proxy war? Well, the opposition would say it started as a revolution. Some maintain that it's still a revolution. My feeling of the tra- my sense of the trajectory is that it started out as a revolution uprising, quickly became a civil war, quickly after that became a proxy war. Although there were strands of all of those all the way through. So it was never one thing or another. It's a matter of degree. So it was more like a revolution in the beginning, more like a civil war in the middle, more like a proxy war in the end, and, and that's the way it kind of is now. And I think it's important to to note also that you have all these factions operating, and among Syrians themselves, take an array of positions that have shifted over the past 10 years. And people used to talk about the silent middle and or the gray area, that you know you had very strong opposition figures, many of whom either chose to or were forced to flee into exile, and you had very staunch regime supporters. But in the middle, you had a lot of people who were not terribly satisfied with either of those two, um, with either of those two options. Would that go to explain some way as to why then lots of other countries haven't necessarily pushed for the change of regime? Is it because his replacement, whoever that could be, could then exacerbate things further. Because you kind of think from the outside in, if Assad wasn't there, would this all go away? But I suppose it's what would then be in Assad's place? Um, It is true to a certain extent, but there's a history to that that is partly regime design. Um, And he had help with the Americans via Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, the UAE uh, and Turkey even because um, Turkey's government is very Islamist friendly. Uh, So all of that um, has produced a a situation in which at the moment it's very hard to envisage something more positive happening. And so when we say, as is very often repeated, there is, there's no alternative. In Arabic they say, there's no alternative large numbers of people who either support Bashar al-Assad or who are not actively opposing him and haven't actively opposed him do so on secular grounds. They 
do not want to live in an Islamist polity. Um, they're very much against um, Islam and politics, and they fear that that is the only viable alternative um, on the map at the moment. Um, so they will they will support a dictator whom they are at best ambivalent about, um, and a polity that restricts their freedoms in many ways um, for fear of political Islam. Which is, I think we have to, if we don't agree with that stance, we have to at least understand it because they're the very people who are going to have to live under the alternative, should there be one. However, there are those who point out that given that the vast number of casualties and of human rights abuses, torture, imprisonment, horrors beyond imagining, um, as we've seen in, in, in the photographs that have emerged, um, it's hard to imagine, even if there was an Islamist government, that it could be any worse. So you ha those are the kinds of conversations that are taking place. Uh, you just mentioned the, uh, the, the civilians, the innocent people, the, the torture, the, the bloodshed, and I think that's um, a really important uh, kind of next part for us to look at. You also mentioned the pictures, um, very famous picture that's been seen all around the world of the little boy covered in sand and dust, sat on a hospital seat. Um, and I think the British perspective as well, a lot of sometimes very negative stories about Syrian refugees and, and where they fled. So um, I know over 20 million people have fled their homes just for Turkey alone. What can you tell us that we don't already know about the Syrian people, how many have died and been injured and lost their homes? I mean, how devastating has this been for the civilian population? It has been unspeakably devastating, um, immeasurably, even though many of my colleagues are in the process of measuring the devastation. Um, and it's it, it beyond physical, um, uh, which is, of course, people lost their homes, they lost their life savings. Um, they, um, uh, professional people are now, which many of the forced migrants were professional people, well-educated, are, are, have been forced to um, work in very menial jobs if they were lucky enough to find a home and establish a new life and, 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 and obtain new employment. It wasn't like, you know, what they were doing back at home. They did not, many did not want to leave um, and uh, would go back if they could. Um, and yet they find themselves victims of racism and guilt by association and Islamophobia, um, even though many migrants are not Muslims and many, most were not Islamist. Um, and they kind of got tarred with the same brush as a lot of other groups and, and, and criminals and, um, and those who were, unwilling to assimilate, which is very often not the case for Syrians. They tend to learn new languages very quickly um, and uh, become part of the societies that they find themselves in. They may look a little different and sound a little different, but they're, they become active, po positive citizens. And that's true throughout the, the places that they've, um, they've settled in, in the Middle East itself and in Europe and in North America. Part of the devastation also is psychological, and one has to really recognize that for this was this has been ten years almost, and um, a whole generation 
will have grown up with this um, and has experienced PTSD of some form or another. So that's another issue that I think um, has to be at least engage, at least acknowledged when when talking about Syrian refugees. There's tens of millions of them that have been misplaced out of Syria, um, and as you've you've said yourself, it's very hard to see a way out of this at the moment. Is it getting worse? I be- well, it it, I, it depends on what you mean by the it. I think some things are getting worse. Um, I think people are happy that there's not warfare in much of the country anymore. That's that's a positive thing. Um, but political and economic conditions are getting worse for a lot of people. And, and you know, that holding on that, oh, you know, I can get through the next year on my savings, but you know, this when this ends, you know, and now that that when this ends moment hasn't come to fruition because, yes, most of the actual fighting has ended, but the kinds of conditions that made life so difficult have not improved and have in many cases worsened. And the economic situation in Syria at the moment is really dire. The Syrian lira has fallen yet again um, in conjunction with the fall of the Lebanese pound because the two economies are very much intertwined. So inflation, shortages, um, it's, it's very difficult to live in Syria right now. And unfortunately, this, this newly imposed sanctions will have an effect on ordinary people. One hopes that they also have an effect on, on powerful people who are implicated in these crimes. But we also know that it's not going to stop there. The, the damage is not going to stop there. So when you add all of that, that up together, um, for, for some groups, for, for in some regions, things are worse. If you take Damascus, for example, they used to call it the Damascus bubble for, because for many years it was not touched by the war very directly. Now it's a very difficult place to live. Um, you did say that w- the way the people look at it is when this is over and not if. So there is the optimism there. Um, there was. I, I think that's what they were. That's what they were thinking during the war. That's what got people through. And I did speak to I was there twice. Um, during the the war and um, the folks that I did speak to very much were of the mind that we just, you know, we just have to hold on and get through this um, and it will end. But we're no closer to that now. In some ways, in terms of living conditions, in terms of hope for the future, um, we're further away. Goodness. Uh, Well, we're nine years in, so... Perhaps I'll have you back onto the podcast for part two, nine years from now, and we can uh, reassess where things are. But I, I hope nine years from now, uh, this isn't still raging on. Um, is there anything we've missed that an expert should really know about? Well, one thing to emphasize, because I can't help but feel, hope and feel that the legacy of this endures, is the civil society that Syrians in in um, when they had opportunities to do so outside of regime control set up. Um, and those are very hopeful. And one hopes that they, that that experiment, that experience will feed into something more positive in the future. You know, they've done it once on a small scale in a patchwork form. 
in a, in a very contentious form sometimes, but it was that, that experience was there. Um, and one hopes that there is a revival of that, that there's a moment that that can reemerge. If anyone would like to further their reading or deepen their understanding, uh, you have a number of books to your name. Is that right, Professor? I do. My first book is called A New Old Damascus, Authenticity and Distinction in Urban Syria. And um, it is uh, really a study of efforts to preserve, celebrate, represent, and critique old Damascus as both a physical space and an ideal. And really, it was a way to talk about in the early 90s, which was when I did my original fieldwork, it was a way to talk about sectarian and class distinctions, which were politically taboo, even though they were very much present and operating. So instead of saying, you know, so how do you feel about that other religious group, I would say, yeah, how do you feel about the effort to, you know, turn that old Damascus house into a restaurant or to prevent to prevent new buildings being built in the old city. And that would you know, sort of produce an outpouring of um, what really couldn't and shouldn't be talked about and, and often wasn't. So my next book, which will come out hopefully uh, with Indiana University Press, is called Waiting for Light, Syrian Drama Producers in the Satellite Era. Um, and I also have an edited volume on um, Syria from Reform to Revolt. It's volume two, which is on society, religion, and culture. And that has a piece on, two pieces actually, on Syrian drama and other pieces on Syrian Christians um, and Syrian Muslim organizations. Um, so it's, it, you know, sort of, and, and Syrian literature. So it's a, it's a kind of broad array of uh, oblique angles because I really feel like to, understand politics with a with a capital p we have to understand politics with a small p and that book is very much about politics with a small p um and and it shows you so it shows you the society from an angle a very telling angle well you can find out so much more um about those books and also uh, read so much more of uh professor salamandra's work uh, at christasalamandra.net Thank you very much for your time, Professor Krista Salamandra, Syrian media specialist and professor of anthropology at Lehman College and the Graduate Centre, City University of New York. Thank you for listening to The 30 Minute Expert, the podcast that aims to make you an expert on a chosen topic in 30 minutes. Information on new episodes can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search 30 Minute Expert. That's three zero Minute Expert. You can also suggest topics for future podcasts. Just let me know what you'd like to become an expert at in half an hour or less.